We have reached the point that we have left the matrix of the New Testament with its eschatology of victory and spent a little time looking at some of the writings of the Apostolic Fathers, those whose writings are attributed to people known by the Apostles whose names are mentioned in the New Testament themselves. As we now move on chronologically, away from the Apostolic Fathers, we go into the second century A.D. Patristic Fathers. To some extent, we are still here on the <coughs> edge of the Apostolic Father period, inasmuch as the first representative of this period, Ignatius, although not deemed to have known John, the Apostle, is deemed to have known John's friend Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna, who is usually classified in this period, even though he is deemed to have known John himself. Some feel, but I don't know it can be proven, that Ignatius even knew John himself. If he did, and I leave that an open question, the following quotation that I'm about to give you would be a striking comment on the optimistic thrust of John's own book of Revelation in Scripture. Now, Ignatius, the bishop of Antioch, uh, wrote several epistles. One of them was an epistle that he wrote to the Philadelphians, to the Christians in the city of Philadelphia in what is now western Turkey. And he writes in chapter 3 of this epistle, Moses was meek, that is, Moses was a law-abiding person. He was meek or law-abiding above all men. And David was exceeding meek, exceeding law-abiding. Uh, pardon me, that's the epistle to the Ephesians chapter 10. Uh, and then in the epistle to the Philadelphians chapter 3, the same Ignatius writing from Antioch, says the following. Moses declares, quote, Their murmuring is not against us, but against the Lord God. Exodus 16, verse 8. No one of these has, in fact, remained unpunished, who rose up against their superiors. Sorry, that again is the epistle to the Magnesians, chapter 3. And then, in the epistle to the Philadelphians, chapter 3, Ignatius says, If any man does not stand aloof from the preacher of falsehood, he shall be condemned to hell. For it is obligatory neither to separate from the godly, nor to associate with the ungodly. Have no fellowship with such a man, lest ye perish along with him. Even should he be thy father, thy son, thy brother, or a member of thy family. For Scripture says, Deuteronomy 13, verses 6 and 8, Thine eyes shall not spare him. This is fascinating. Here's a man writing 107 A.D. or thereabouts, quoting Deuteronomy 13 as authority for Christian practice. And then he writes in his epistle to the Smyrnians, 
people in the city of Smyrna, chapter 6. The chief points are faith toward God, hope toward Christ, the enjoyment of those things for which we look, and love toward God and our neighbor. For thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and thy neighbor as thyself. And the Lord says, A new commandment give I unto you, that ye love one another. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And then he gives as references John 13:34 and Matthew 23, verse 40. The latter passage, you remember, is where Jesus is berating the hypocritical Pharisees for their transgressions of God's moral law. He also wrote this Ignatius, Palestinian bishop of Antioch, an epistle to Polycarp. And he says to Polycarp, Let not those who seem worthy of credit, but who teach strange doctrines, fill thee with apprehension. Stand firm, as does an anvil which is beaten. It is the part of a noble athlete to be wounded, and yet to conquer. See from that element in his epistle that he, the structure of his thinking is that of suffering wounds for the sake of the kingdom but with the expectation and the certainty and the hope of proceeding unto conquest. Especially we ought to bear all things for the sake of God so that he also may bear with us and bring us into his kingdom. Add more and more to thy diligence. Run thy race with increasing energy. Run the race with energy, but with increasing energy. Weigh carefully the times, like the sons of Issachar. And whilst thou art here, be a conqueror, for here is the course, and there are the crowns. Then we have an extremely interesting little epistle by an unknown author, generally called Diognetus, but strictly speaking wrongfully named, because the epistle is not written by Diognetus, but he is, it is written by an author now unknown to Diognetus. It's sometimes called Mathetes, meaning the uh, disciples' epistle to Diognetus. At any rate, this was written in approximately 130 A.D., and the seventh chapter has the following remarkable words. The Christians marry, as do all other men. They beget children, but they do not cast away their fetuses. That chapter 5, and then in the seventh chapter, the Christians, though subjected day by day to punishment, Increase the more in number. God has assigned them this illustrious position, which it were unlawful for them to forsake. See what he's saying? It is illegitimate for Christians to forsake their vocation of increasing and moving forward under conquest. And ask ourselves how legitimate a large portion of that which calls itself the Church of Christ is today in the light of that emphasis then. Do you not see 
Christians exposed to the wild beasts, he means probably literally thrown to the lions in the Colosseum, so that they should be persuaded to deny the Lord, but yet they are not overcome? Do you not see that the more of them that are thus punished, the greater becomes the number of the rest? This seems, uh, this does not seem to be the work of man. This is the power of God. And then, about five years later, in A.D. 135, there is an epistle attributed to Clement, the Clement mentioned by Paul in Philippians, but it would seem probably not actually written by Clement, and today generally called Pseudo-Clement. Nevertheless, Pseudo-Clement, second epistle, as opposed to Clement, first epistle, from Rome to the Corinthians. But in this very ancient document, reflecting regardless as to the author of its origin, uh, the feeling of the writer and the recipient in that Christian circle, we read a comment uh, by the writer on some of the words of God. The reflection is to that part of the Bible where God said, Rejoice, thou barren, that bearest not. He referred to us, for our church was barren before that children were given to her. He means that our people seemed to be outcast from God, but now, through believing, our people have become more numerous than those who are reckoned to possess God. Thus, too, Christ desired to save the things which were perishing and has saved many by coming and calling us when hastening to destruction. The view that we get here then is that of slow but steady advance of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ in spite of heavy persecution. And then we come to Polycarp. Now Polycarp uh, was the bishop, the presiding officer, of the church in Smyrna, he wrote in approximately A.D. 140, and he is alleged by some to have known the Apostle John. And Polycarp wrote to the church in Ephesus, and in the, first, in the twelfth chapter of that epistle, he wrote, I trust that ye are well versed in the sacred scriptures and that nothing is hid from you. But to me this privilege is not yet granted. It is declared then in these scriptures, Be ye angry and sin not, and let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Happy is he who remembers this, which I believe to be the case with you. But may the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ himself, who is the Son of God, and our everlasting High Priest, may he build you up in faith and truth and in all meekness, that is, in all law-abidingness, gentleness, patience, long-suffering, forbearance, and purity. May he bestow upon you a lot and a portion among his saints, 
and on us with you, and on all that are under heaven, who shall believe in our Lord Jesus Christ, and in his Father, who raised him from the dead. Pray for all of the saints. Pray also for kings, and potentates, and princes, and for those that persecute and hate you, and for the enemies of the cross, so that your fruit may become manifest to all, and so that you may be perfect in him. Polycarp then would seem to believe in the triumph of the gospel through difficulty, and though he himself, as we know, was martyred for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, he died in the certain knowledge of the victory of the church of subsequent generations, even as did Tertullian after him, who argued that the blood of the martyrs is indeed the seed of the church. We now reach that fascinating person, uh, Justin Martyr, but before him, a mention of a man called Papius, who is supposed to have written in A.D. 145. Now, the problem with Papius, or rather with his writings, is that we do not have any writings today from his hand. All that we have of Papius, 145 A.D., is a mention of some of the things he is alleged to have held by the premillennialist Irenaeus in 185 A.D. And of course Irenaeus, although a tremendous and a godly covenant theologian in one respect, uh, is not devoid of error in other areas, as I'll point out when I get there. At any rate, Papias, as described in the later Irenaeus, gives us a picture of a future time of plentiful earthly activity, reminiscent of that described in Second Barak, in Second Enoch, and in the Sibylline oracles, and more particularly and more remotely reminiscent of the situation of the future described in the Old Testament itself, notably in Amos chapter 9 and Isaiah chapter 30. Again, we, tell, we say that there are no extant writings of Papias himself. What we know of his teachings is recorded in the writings of Irenaeus. And later after Irenaeus, in the writings of Eusebius. Now, Eusebius, uh, who was certainly no premillennialist, obviously disapproves of Irenaeus' presentation of Papias's assumed crass materialism. But Eusebius does not establish that Papias was a premillennialist, although the premillennialist Irenaeus who mentions him does seem to make that assumption, together with many other assumptions in other areas which we can disprove as being factually incorrect. I do not believe it can be established today, with the writings of Papias themselves being lost, that he was clearly a premillennialist who believed in two resurrections widely separated from one another, and it is conceivable to me 
that on the basis of his sketching of the future golden age, he might even have been a historic post-millennialist. But I'll leave that issue open. We now pass on to Justin Martyr, uh, who, I must concede, was certainly a Christian premillennialist, but an entirely different kind of premillennialist, even to the classic premillennialists of our own day and age. Now, in approaching, uh, in approaching Justin Martyr, there are a number of things that uh, we need to understand about him. The first is that he was exposed to theology emanating from a very peculiar part of the world in northwestern Turkey, a place, in fact, called Phrygia. Indeed, in Justin Martin's dialogue with Trifo, uh, and in other subsequent writings of other church fathers, it is clear that he absorbed some of the Montanist premillennialism from outside of mainline church eschatology from this region of Phrygia in what is now northwestern Turkey. Now, Phrygia in Asia uh, seems to have been the center uh, the central dissemination point of this 2nd to 3rd century A.D. classic premillennialism. Uh, it was indeed a classic premillennialism in Phrygia. It was opposed to the concrete Old Testament millennial teaching, and yet it derived some of its elements uh, from traditions outside of Scripture, such as the Persian tradition, which in themselves were but perversions of the original Edenic tradition. It's important for us to realize that the heretic Cerinthus, who flourished about 100 AD, was also a premillennialist, and that he hailed from this region of Phrygia. Papius and Justin Martyr both seem to have been in contact with that region. So too later did Irenaeus and after him Tertullian. No doubt the non-Christian Serinthus, himself a premillennialist, picked up the Phrygian heresy of premillennialism from those more eastern Persian and Babylonian quarters. Interestingly, even Augustine, himself a premillennialist, during the pre-Christian period of his life as a Manetian, prior to his conversion to Christ, appears to have derived that pre-conversional premillennialism from Persian Manetianism. Be it as it may, we need to know this to put Justin Martyr in correct perspective as far as the roots of his classic Christian premillennialism. Now, in the dialogue with Trifo, we should notice how Justin Martyr's premillennialism was not only chiefly motivated by the desire to Christianize the Jew Trifo, but 
unlike the premillennialism of modern premillennialists, Justin Martyr believed that Christ would give the Holy Land to all Christians, be they converts to Christ from the Jews or from the Gentiles. He would give them that land as an eternal or a never-ending thousand years, during which time the believers would be permanently immortal. And now in chapter 62 of the Dialogue with Trifo, we find Justin Martyr, in spite of his classic premillennialism thus defined, making the following remarkable statements. He says, God speaks in the creation of man with the very same design, and in the following words, quote, Let us make man after our image and likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the heaven, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over all the creeping things that creep on the earth. And God created man. After the image of God did he create him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them and said, Increase and multiply and fill the earth and have power over it. Seems very elementary. But when you think it through, you'll notice that this classic premillennialist is not saying, stop the world, I'm getting off. We have no power. He's saying the opposite. He's saying, God has given us the power over the earth to increase and to multiply on it. And then a little later, in chapters 75 and 95 of the same dialogue, uh, we find Justin Martyr writing from Samaria in Palestine saying the following. It is written... The Lord spake to Moses, Say to this people, Behold, I send my angel before thy face, to keep thee in the way, to bring thee into the land which I have prepared for thee. Give heed to him, and obey him. Do not disobey him, for he will not draw back from you, for my name is on him. Exodus 23. For it is written in the law of Moses, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. I find it interesting that this early Christian premillennialist quotes so copiously from the Mosaic judicials. But that's just an interesting aside. If those who are under this law appear to be under a curse for not having obey, observed all the requirements, how much more shall all the nations appear to be under a curse who practice idolatry, who seduce youths, and who commit other crimes? And then he tells us in chapters 109 and 110 that the Gentiles will repent of the evil in which they lead erring lives when they hear the doctrine preached by Christ's apostles from Jerusalem, and which they learn through them. Allow me, says Justin Martyr to the Jew Trifo, allow me to show you by quoting a short statement from the prophecy of Micah, one of the twelve minor prophets. It is as follows. And in the last days and he is claiming that that was being fulfilled in his own age, 
In the last days the mountain of the Lord shall be manifest, established on the top of the mountains. It shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it. And many nations shall go and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, and to the house of the God of Jacob. For it is plain that though beheaded and crucified, though thrown to wild beasts, though chained and subject to fire and other kinds of torture, we do not give up our confession, but the more such things happen, the more do others in larger numbers become faithful and worshippers of God through the name of Jesus. Wouldn't it be wonderful today if our fellow Christians who are premillennialists had that emphasis in their premillennialism uh, which Justin Martyr had in his. And what shall we say of the early Assyrian Tatian? He wrote in his sixth, sixth book to the Greeks uh, from Assyria, we believe that there will be a resurrection of bodies after the consummation of all things. Not as the Stoics affirm, according to the return of certain cycles, the same things being produced and destroyed for no useful purpose, but a resurrection once for all, one resurrection, you see, uh, anti-premillennial emphasis there, when our periods of existence are completed, and in consequence, solely of the constitution of things under which men alone live for the purpose of passing judgment upon them. It says a number of things there that perhaps you didn't catch when I was reading it. He says in what we've just read, first, there will be a resurrection of bodies. Second, he says it will take place after the consummation of all things, not prior to a millennium that will follow it, but the resurrection takes place after the consummation of all things. And then he says that the Stoics, the pagan Greeks, are wrong in their cyclical view of history. That things just go round and round and round uh, without ever moving on. And he points out that the biblical understanding of history is lineal, not cyclical. Uh, are not purposeless, but purposeful. Things are leading toward the end of history and the consummation of the ages when there will be a resurrection and a rounding off once and for all and last for the purpose of passing judgment, bringing all things into judgment whether they be good or whether they are evil as Ecclesiastes said. And then there are the interesting statements made from Syria uh, from the seat of Antioch by Bishop Theophilus some five years after Tatian in approximately A.D. 170. Now this Theophilus wrote to a person called Ortolycus in the second book, chapter 15, and the third books, chapters 9 and 11, as follows. And I think you find this an absolutely fascinating citation involving indeed uh, some strange kind of over-symbolism of the imagination but at the same time 
also showing a tremendous stress on the abiding importance of God's law as the tool for Christian reconstruction. He writes in discussing the deeper significance, as he perceives it, of the days of formation in Genesis 1, quote, The three days which were before the luminaries, or the suns and the moon and the stars, in other words, Genesis 1, verse 3 through 13, these three days are types of the Trinity. On the fourth day, the lights were made. The disposition of the stars, too, contains a type of the arrangement and order of the righteous and pious, and of those who keep the law and commandments of God. And those heavenly bodies again, listen to this, which change their position and which flee from place to place, like those today who change their theology uh, pragmatically to adjust to every slate and wind of change, those are what we call planets, wanderers. They are the type of those men who have wandered away from God, abandoning his law and commandments. Now we also confess that God exists, but that he is one, the creator and maker and fashioner of this universe, and we know that all things are arranged by his providence, but by him alone. And we have learned a holy law, but we have as lawgiver him who is really God, who teaches us to act righteously and to be pious and to do good. Concerning piety, he says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them, for I am the Lord thy God. And of doing good, he said, Honor thy father and thy mother, that it may be well with thee, and that thy days may be long in the land which I, the Lord, give thee. Again, concerning righteousness, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, nor his land. Notice the concreteness of the things we are not to covet. House, land, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his beast of burden, nor any of his cattle, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. And now notice this, right after the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not rest the judgment of the poor in his cause. Exodus 23, verse 6. From every unjust matter keep thee far. The innocent and righteous thou shalt not slay. Thou shalt not justify the wicked. Thou shalt not take a gift or a bribe. For gifts blind the eyes of them that see and pervert righteous words. Of this divine law then, Moses, who also was God's servant, was made the minister both 
to all the world and chiefly to the Hebrews and gave them a law and told them these things of this great and wonderful law which tends to all righteousness the ten heads he means the ten commandments are such as we have already rehearsed and when the people transgressed the law which had been given them by God God being good and pitiful unwilling to destroy them in addition to giving them the law afterwards sent forth also prophets to them from among their brethren to teach and remind them of the contents of the law and to turn them to repentance that they might sin no more. He then proceeds to link all of this significantly to the Dominion Charter in his epistle to Antolinus uh, chapters 18 and 36 where he says when God had made and blessed man that he might increase and replenish the earth he put all things under his dominion and at his service and unto men he made all cattle subject making man the God formed image ruler over all and putting in, sub in subjection to his sway things many and incomprehensible you know I cannot but wonder whether Theophilus Bishop of Antioch in the Holy Land AD 170 would be given many pulpits in many so-called churches of Jesus Christ if he were to come and preach these things today instead of preaching that horrible heresy free from the law oh happy condition sin all you want because there's always remission and now let us pass on to Athenagoras a Greek philosopher from Athens he flourished and wrote in approximately 183 and his major extant work is uh, a book concerning the resurrection of the dead in the 12th chapter he makes the following statement God made man for himself and in pursuance of the goodness and wisdom which are conspicuous throughout the creation yet according to the view which more nearly touches the beings created God made man for the sake of the life of those created things which is not kindled for a little while and then extinguished for to creeping things I suppose and birds and fishes or to speak more generally all irrational creatures God has assigned such a life as that that is to be kindled for a little while and then to be extinguished but to those who bear upon them the image of the creator himself who are endowed with understanding and who are blessed with a rational judgment the creator has assigned perpetual duration in order that recognizing their own maker and his power and skill and obeying law and justice they may pass their whole existence free from suffering in the possession of those qualities with which they have bravely borne their preceding life although they lived in corruptible and earthly bodies and now we come to the great supposed darling of the modern dispensationalists 
uh, the great and godly theologian Irenaeus, the French bishop of Lyon, or Lyon, flourishing about A.D. 185. Now, Irenaeus was a premillennialist, a classic Christian premillennialist. But, we need to understand that this man was strongly anti-Judaistic. He would have had no sympathy whatsoever with a modern dispensationalist position that the Jews or the Israelis are somehow God's chosen people, that they would ever return to Palestine, or that they would ever be brought to any position, either nationally, materially, or spiritually, of favor in the eyes of Almighty God, other than by being incorporated into the Christian church from which their ancestors, their deemed ancestors, departed and that they would have to come to Christ like any other Gentile in order to participate in all of these blessings. He was a covenant theologian in spite of his premillennialism, this Irenaeus. He strongly developed the idea of Jesus Christ being the second Adam and recapitulating God's original cultural mandate or dominion charter, fulfilling it through Christ, and him requiring his Christians or Christians following in his footsteps to continue in that area. Now, premillennialism was not the only error of Irenaeus, in spite of his strengths. And I love to point out to our premillennial Christian brethren that they should not attach too much importance to this man's declared classic premillennialism. After all, do our modern premillennial brethren agree with Irenaeus where he says that God created Adam as a little baby, as he does? Do our modern premillennial Christian brethren agree with Irenaeus when he states that even after Lot's wife turned into a pillar of salt, she continued menstruating from month to month? as he does. And our modern premillennial brethren certainly do not agree with Irenaeus's practice of baptismal regeneration, presupposing that people are regenerated while being baptized, nor indeed even with his favorable attitude toward the practice of infant baptism, at least most of our modern premillennial Christians would not agree with him there. They might agree with him in assigning a late date to the book of Revelation uh, on the basis of no pre-Irenaical historical evidence whatsoever and in the teeth of suggestions to the contrary perhaps from the internal evidence of the book of Revelation itself but I think I've said enough to make it very problematical and which should make it problematical even to a modern premillennialist to uncritically absorb everything on every subject that Irenaeus did assert. However, if we are to absorb at least Irenaeus's classic premillennialism, 
perhaps we can also absorb some of the aspects of his premillennialism which I believe are so repulsive to so many modern premillennialists. For example, this same Irenaeus says in his great work against the heresies, book 4, chapter 11 and paragraph 1, how the scriptures, how do the scriptures testify of him, that is of Jesus, unless all things had ever been revealed and shown to believers by one and the same God through the word. He at one time conferred with his creature and at another propounded his law, at one time reproving, at another exhorting, and then setting free his servant and adopting him as a son, and at the proper time bestowing an incorruptible inheritance for the purpose of bringing man to perfection, for God formed man for growth and increase, as the scripture says, increase and multiply. And as you know, our modern dispensationalist brethren have very little time for the most part of them for any attempt to be made after the fall to take seriously what they wrongly call an exclusively pre-fall reality such as the cultural mandate to increase and to multiply. This same Irenaeus again in book 4 of the heresies chapter 16 paragraphs 3 and 4 has the following to say he says the righteous fathers had the meaning of the decalogue written in their hearts and souls and it enjoined love to God and taught just dealing toward our neighbor through the medium of the decalogue the Lord himself did speak in his own person to all alike the words of the Decalogue, and therefore, in like manner, do they remain permanently with us. Let me read you that again. I want the full weight of this to sink into our souls. He says, The righteous fathers had the meaning of the Decalogue written in their hearts and souls. It, the Decalogue, enjoined love to God, and taught just dealings toward our neighbor through the medium of the Decalogue. The Lord himself did speak in his own person to all alike, to all alike, the words of the Decalogue, and therefore, in like manner, do they, the words of the Decalogue, remain permanently with us. It's incredible to me that any group of Christians could ever arisen to have challenged the propriety and the place of God's law in the church today in the light of even minority premillennial or early church evidence such as this. Receiving by means of his advent in the flesh extension and increase but not abrogation. I must read that again. He says, the words of the Decalogue remain in like manner permanently with us, receiving by means of his advent in the flesh, extension and increase, but not abrogation. What's he saying? 
he's saying that the law of God is certainly not cancelled or abrogated in the New Testament. He's saying it's not merely reconfirmed. He's saying that it receives an extension and an increasing emphasis under the greater light of the New Testament than previously. And now we must leave Irenaeus in France and go and pay a visit to Egypt at the great library of Alexandria, A.D. 190. Clement the Egyptian. He wrote a very interesting work called Stromata, or The Carpet, that which has been interwoven. And it is indeed a very rich medley of theological colors. And he says in chapter 17 of this work, the word of our teacher remained not in Judea alone, as philosophy did in Greece, but was diffused over the whole world, over every nation and village and town, bringing already over to the truth whole houses, and each individual of those who heard it by himself, and not a few of the philosophers themselves. And if any one ruler whatever prohibit the Greek philosophy, it vanishes forthwith. But our doctrine, on its very first proclamation, was prohibited by kings and tyrants together, as well as by particular rulers and governors, with all of their mercenaries, and in addition by innumerable men, warring against us, and endeavoring as far as they could to exterminate it. But our doctrine flourishes the more. Oh, doesn't that thrill your heart? Doesn't it remind you of Acts chapter 12, when godless King Herod was pushed aside, but the word of God increased and went on the more. Again, in his book, The Instructor, uh, book 3, chapters 11 and 12, he tells us, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for God will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. This is apparently the doctrine that flourishes the more. Ye may comprehend the commandments in two. As the Lord says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all of thy soul and with all of thy strength and thy neighbor as thyself. And then from these he infers on this hang the law and the prophets. Further, to him that asked, What good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Jesus answered, Thou knowest the commandments. And on him replying, Yes, Jesus said, Do this, and thou shalt be saved. We have the Decalogue given by Moses, which, indicating by an elementary principle, simple and of one kind, defines the designation of sins in a way conducive to salvation. Thou shalt not commit adultery, Thou shalt not worship idols, thou shalt not corrupt boys, thou shalt not steal, 
Thou shalt not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother, and so forth. These things are to be observed, says Clement. He also writes in his exhortation to the heathen, chapter 4, exhortation to the heathen, not to the Jews, we are expressly prohibited from exercising a deceptive art. For thou shalt not make the likeness of anything which is in heaven above or in the earth beneath, says the prophet. You see the implication of that? He says to the heathen, you've got to quit making idols because God says to us, thou shalt not make any graven image. The law is for all men and not just for the Jews, he is saying. And then in the carpet, the stromata again, book 3, chapters 2 and 15, and book 5, chapter 11, this same Clement of Alexander says, The law says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. And the gospel says, Whosoever looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery. For this, Thou shalt not covet, which is pronounced by the law, shows that it is one and the same God who preaches through the law and the prophets and the gospel. He says we have a hermeneutic of continuity, one and the same message. For Abraham is the father not only of the Hebrews, but also of the Gentiles. And if both the adulteress and the adulterer are punished by death, Deuteronomy 22, verse 22, it is clear too that the precept which teaches thou shalt not lust after thy neighbor's wife is addressed to the Gentiles too. Honor thy father and mother that it may go well with you. Behold, I set before thy face life and death to love the Lord thy God and to walk in his ways and hear his voice and trust in life. But if ye transgress the statutes and the judgments which I have given you, ye shall be destroyed with destruction. For this is life and the length of thy days to love the Lord thy God. Deuteronomy chapter 30 verses 15 and 16, unquote, Clement of Alexandria. Last, at the very end of the second century A.D., we find in the writings of Caius, an Italian presbyter at Rome, the following wholesale condemnation of all brands of premillennialism, from which we can see that premillennialism had now finally become a strong enough minority in the church to merit condemnation on the part of mainstream Christianity for deviating away from the major focus of Scripture. Now, this Caius says in fragment number one, sections one and two, and we only have a few fragments left of his writings, I can show the trophies of the apostles. 
as a non-premillennialist. He's saying, I believe as a non-premillennialist what the apostles believe, but Cerinthus, the Gnostic premillennial heretic, shows trophies through revelations written as he would have us believe by a supposedly great apostle brings before us marvelous things which he pretends were shown him by angels alleging that after the resurrection the flesh dwelling in Jerusalem is again to be subject to desires and pleasures and Corinthus being an enemy to the scriptures of God wishing to deceive men he says that there is to be a space of a thousand years for marriage festivals I believe we can see that from this evidence uh, up till the end of the second century the premillennialism was unknown for the first part of this period and though emerging in Christian circles in a very subdued way as a minority group toward the end of this period it was never coupled to an eschatology of defeat but always to an eschatology of victory putting a tremendous emphasis on the keeping of the law of God out of gratitude to Christ for so great a salvation as the instrument one of the chief instruments for the advance of the gospel of Christ thank you this Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books you are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, 
whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.